You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So we're taking 10 weeks to get through uh, Esther, uh, one chapter a week. I know it's quite, a, quite an undertaking. I think we've been doing pretty good. I hope that you've been blessed by this series by today. But today is Esther 9. We're going to go through 20 verses. Uh, Esther 9 is 32 verses, if I'm not mistaken. We're going to go through 20. And just because uh, next week, uh, chapter 10 is only, I think, three verses, we're going to do um, a little bit the end of chapter 9 and then chapter 10. Uh, so today we're in Esther 9. Um, and we are going to be focusing on two men. That's not to say that the sermon is not for the ladies. Please don't get up and leave. Um, but we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on two powerful men, two significant men and two important men. One is Haman. Um, and if you, if you are not familiar with the book of Esther, this is kind of the first time at church. I'm going to do my best to kind of summarize at least a little bit. So one man is Haman, and he's from a line called the Agagites. And these are godless people. Uh, by the way, not everybody is a godly person. Not everyone belongs to the Lord. Not everyone is going to make it to heaven. So he is a bad man from a bad line, headed toward a bad eternity. And he has issued a decree. He rose to a position of power uh, in this uh, Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires that ever lived, to a position second only to the king, um, King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, as we have it in, in the book of Esther. And he has issued a death sentence for the people of God, that on a particular day, it would be legal to kill all of God's people. And in a great reversal, and that's going to be our word for today, reversal, a great turnaround, the man who was high uh, was taken and brought low. The man who was alive was put to death. The man who wanted to kill Mordecai, he himself was killed. The man who built a 75-foot high gallows in his own yard to crucify his enemy, he himself was crucified in front of his family. The other man, Mordecai, he is one of God's men. He is not a perfect man, but he's a godly man. He's one of God's men. He is a man who, in a great reversal, takes the position of Haman. He becomes uh, the second most powerful. He gets the signet ring. He becomes you know, the, the power of attorney to act on behalf of King Xerxes. Now, he has an opportunity now uh, that he has inherited in the entire state of Haman in his position to reverse this death sentence that is on God's people. And so the first decree was given by Haman to kill all of God's people, and then the second decree is given by Mordecai that God's people can defend themselves, themselves on the day their attackers would come to attack their families. And what we're going to see in Esther 9, in our passage for today, is one of the most bloody, controversial, painful, difficult, complicated sections in all of Scripture. Pastors tend not to preach on it. This is one of the reasons why for the first seven centuries of the church history, no one really touched it. No commentaries were written on it. It's hard, it's painful, and it's complicated. Now, this is where we're going to go today, just so, you know, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a heads up. What we can observe going through the text is that there are three great reversals that happen in these first 20 verses in, in, in chapter 9, where the situation goes from death under the sentence of Haman to life under the liberation of Mordecai. So three great reversals that take place. And so reversal number one is this. You don't have to die with your family. You don't have to die with your family. You can have a new family in Jesus. That's the first reversal. Let's start with verse one. And we didn't read the whole section at the beginning because we're going to break it apart and we're going to read it as we go along. So let's start with verse one. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and by the way, that's an ancient calendar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Here's our word, the reverse. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those 
who hated them. So it's this reversal of the Jewish people. They were going to die, but now they're going to live. They were going to be attacked, but now they are going to defend themselves. They were ruled by Haman, but now they're ruled by Mordecai. They were going to be destroyed, but now they are going to destroy their enemies. It's a reversal. It's a turnaround. Let me just say this without losing any time here. Friends, our part is repentance. God's part is reversal. I'll say that again. Our part is repentance. God's part is reversal. God can and does a lot of times show up and change everything in an instant. He can do that. But this is not a blanket promise that everything in your life will be better tomorrow. It is not. But it is a promise that with God, there's always the possibility that he could show up and reverse everything in an instant depending on his will. Amen? And we've seen that in our lives. And even if he doesn't, he's still faithful. Amen? The cancer could be cured, right? The marriage could be healed. The suffering could be alleviated. You and I, we lose hope when we look at our circumstances many times and we're paralyzed to even look up to God. We lose hope that he could or that he might just intervene and in an instant reverse everything and change the trajectory in our life. And so it says in our passage today, we just read it, Esther 9, that everything was reversed for the people of God. A great reversal occurred. Let's continue with verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Again, King Ahasuerus and King Xerxes, the same, the same guy. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Let's stop here for a second, because I have to say at least this before we move on. This is war. These are the enemies of God's people attacking to murder them. That's what's happening here. Their plan is to kill men women, children, and to plunder them. That's, that's their plan. That's their vision. That's their, that's their plot. And God's people are given, are given an opportunity under the reversal decree of Mordecai to defend themselves. This is just like war. This is not murder. This is justified killing. This is like a soldier or a police officer returning fire. This is not malicious. This is self-defense. Just wanted to make that clear. Let's continue with verse 3. And we're going to read all the way up to verse 10. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, and bear with me here, quite a few names that are very difficult to pronounce, but I'll just be confident, I'll be loud, and it'll be all good. Killed Pershandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aretha, Permasha, and Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha, the sons, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Men, God has given us the responsibility. God has given us the calling to lead and to make decisions. We bear that responsibility. Now, what happens in some cases is the women will try to assume that responsibility because they do not trust their men. It's an old demonic trick all the way, going back all the way to Genesis 3. The men's a coward and and passive, so the woman steps up. The Bible honors women. The Bible honors children. And it does so by putting particular responsibility on the men. What we find in chapter 9 are two men They're making decisions that implicate, that involve their families and their communities. Haman and Mordecai, they are spiritual leaders. They are heads. They are leading people. And of course, God does call women into leadership positions. He does here with Esther, the whole book of Esther. That's what we find. She is a godly leader. Not perfect, but godly. But today we're focusing, as the Bible does, on two men, Haman and Mordecai. 
What happens is they make decisions, and lots of people are affected by these decisions. Haman is governed by something called, and we've looked at this before, called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. The Law of the Medes and the Persians was this. Once a decision is rendered, once a verdict is given, it cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. Another way of saying it theologically is this. We will not repent. We will not change. We will not change our mind. There will be no repentance from us. We've picked the course of, of action, and we're going to proceed forward even if it is to our own death. Now, conversely, Mordecai is not governed by the, by the law of the Medes and the Persians. He's governed by the law of repentance and grace. Different law. We have seen that, the, that he is not a particularly godly man, especially from the beginning, but he's, a, he's not particularly a great leader from the beginning. But when the story, and when the story begins, he's a bit of a coward. He's, he's a bit passive. He avoids conflict. He's like so many sons of Adam, like a lot of us. But over the course of the book, he's a man who is growing in repentance, I believe. He's changing. He's learning to become more courageous, more vocal more responsible. And the result is that the Bible says, quote, and we just read it, he grows in power. He grows in power. Man, all of us desire and want to be great leaders. Amen? You want to make a difference in your family. You want to make a difference in your community, spiritually, financially, so many different areas in, in, in areas in life. If that's the case, then repentance is what we need to start with. You're a sinner. The other men are sinners too, just as I am. And one of the great things that leaders, great leaders do, is they start with repentance. In that, and then God is welcome to show up and do a reversal to change things. Let me ask you this. How many of us, men and women, are governed by the law of the Medes and the Persians? We say, I don't repent when I'm wrong. I don't say I'm sorry. I don't have to. When I've chosen a life course, I continue in it, even if it's disobedience and leading to death. How many people in their business, in their family, in their marriage, they say, you know what? We've picked the wrong direction, but it's too late now. It's like we're, we've run the intersection. We can't hit the brakes and back up, just proceed forward. That's a demonic lie. There's always an opportunity to repent and to trust God to make a reversal. Amen? It's never too late as long as there's breath in our lungs. That's Haman. That's Haman, the guy who built a 75-foot-high gallows for his enemy, and then he ended up being crucified on it himself. This is a precursor. It's a portrait of death and hell and the wrath of God being poured out on those who remain stubbornly unrepentant. You can blame others. I've done it. You can look at your genetics. You can talk about your family of origins that you don't like. You could even look at your biochemical makeup. And at the end of the day, it's called rationalizing. The way I like to call it is performing some mental gymnastics to have an excuse rather than having a repentant heart. And here's what's heartbreaking. Haman does not repent. He dies publicly and shamefully, and he's impaled. And would you believe it, that his sons proceed forward with the same plan? The plan of their father that got him impaled in the first place. That's crazy, right? But we do it too. Have you ever heard the old idiom or saying, like, father, like son? The Bible talks about the sins of the fathers. The boys are just like their dad, all ten of them. Haman thought, I will put to death all God's people. They won't have a lineage. They will not have a legacy to, to leave behind. But in a great reversal, he is put to death, and his ten sons follow in his faithful example, and they are impaled. They're all crucified. Let me say this. Men, we are leaders that lead to death like Haman or leaders that lead to life like Mordecai. We're leaders that lead to unrepentance like Haman or repentance like Mordecai. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? Did you know that in our country, the majority of children born to women under the age of 30 
are born without a father? Today, if you have a father, you're in a minority group. Let alone a father who was repentant. Let alone a father who reads scriptures with you. Let alone a father who, who prays with you and encourages you to be one of the sons of God. Haman is a horrific and terrifying example for all men. So men, no more excuses. I'm preaching to myself. No more blame shifting. No more abandoning of our families. It's time to repent. It's time to change. When you're wrong, say you're wrong. When you've been a fool, say, I've been foolish. When you've messed up, try and make it right by the grace of God. Our part is what? Repentance. God's part is reversal if he chooses to do so. Maybe for some of us, for many of us, this means repenting not only of our sin, but the sins of our fathers. In 1 Peter 1.18, Peter says it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We see the same thing with Haman and his family. They are Agagites. You can, we can go all the way back to Exodus. We can go all the way back to 1 Samuel. We can go all the way back to Deuteronomy. And the Agagites are mentioned there. So we're talking about 1,000 years of godless, horrible, evil men, 1,000 years of continual, unrestrained unrepentance. How long has it been in our family? How long has it been in your family? One generation after the next. Could have been drunkenness or folly, adultery, fornication, selfishness, or just religiosity. Church, as long as we're breathing, the chance and opportunity to repent is available. But the thing is, we only have today. We only have today. Tomorrow's not ours because we just don't know if we're going to be around. Here's the good news. You don't have to die with your family. You don't. You don't have to die with your family. Haman's family line came to an end. Son's dead, family line over. It doesn't have to be like that. Yes, your family may criticize that you love Jesus and you come to church they may reject you because that's what fools, that's what foolish people do marching off to hell. I'm sorry to say it like that. They encourage you to join the parade and they criticize you if you don't march and step with them toward death. You don't have to be like your family. You can have a new family in Jesus Christ, amen? In the grace of God, through repentance, you could be adopted by a new father, our father in heaven, into a new family, and to leave a new legacy. But it starts with humility, knowing your place, and it starts with repentance. And this is where repentance starts. I am a sinner, and I've messed up, and Jesus is the only solution in salvation. And I'm going to trust him fully in the new life he has for me. Amen? Repentance has to start there. We're talking about repentance that starts in the mind. That's where repentance starts, in the mind. This is what Romans 12:2 says. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a change of mind. That's where it starts. You have to start thinking differently. You have to start thinking biblically. And that leads to a change of heart. I don't want to keep doing what I've been doing. I want to be different. I want things to change. And then that leads to a change of life. It's not just a change of mind and heart, but it's a change of life. What I used to say is not what I say anymore. What I used to do is not what I do anymore. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ now. It's not just repenting of what I've done. It's repenting of who I've been. I have a new identity in Jesus Christ. I want to live more like who I am. Amen? Haman never experiences that. Haman should have repented. He should have gathered his sons around when he was facing this death sentence and said, Sons, I've rebelled against God. I've been proud and arrogant, and now everything is reversed on me toward death. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified in our yard. And when you see the body of your hanging father, remember that this is what happens. This is what happens to unrepentant men, and then please repent. Don't, don't go marching off to war. Don't put your lives in danger. Don't defend my honor because I'm a dishonorable man. He didn't do that. So the sons picked up the thinking and the motives and the behaviors of their father, and they all got 
crucified. This is not just for the men, but for the women too. Church, it doesn't have to be like that. And this is the message that we preach. It doesn't have to be like that. We can choose to repent and live a new life in Christ. You can repent and see a reversal. You can repent and have your wife and children repent and see a reversal of their trajectory from death to life. You could be the first link in a new family chain that's a thousand years of obedience instead of a thousand years of disobedience. And some of us would say, but I've already made so much damage. My life, my, my, my family is so dysfunctional already. Then repent and invite God to bring a reversal in your life and to change things because he loves you. Because he loves you. He's a good father. He's not against his sons. He's not against the world. But if his sons are against him, it places him in a position where to bless them would be to encourage their rebellion. He's a loving God. He's a loving father. So reversal number one, you don't have to die with your family. You can have a new family in Jesus. Amen? Reversal number two, you don't have to have all your questions answered. You don't. You know more than enough to love God and to follow him. I'll say that again. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You know more than enough to love God and follow him. Let's continue to read verses 11 to 15. Well, let me just say this before I, I read this section. The part of the Bible we're coming into right now is very controversial and massively debated. It's the Persian Hunger Games. It gets dark. I'm just going to tell you where we're going. It gets dark. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So if we go back to chapter 3, the godless man Haman makes an edict, and this edict says, on this day we can kill God's people, men, women, children, and plunder all their goods. In chapter 8, Mordecai replaces Haman, gets the signet ring. He becomes the vice president equivalent of the country. He issues a reverse decree that God's people on that same day, they can defend themselves. So the provision of Haman's instruction was this. They can only attack on one day. Mordecai's instruction was we can only defend ourselves on one day, on that same day. And then Queen Esther steps forward. That's exactly what we read. And so she asks for two additional things. One, we killed a lot of people today. We'd like an additional day to kill more people. Number two, Haman's ten sons are dead, but I would like to crucify them publicly to make a statement. And by the way, the hanging here, when it says they're hanging on the gallows, we tend to think of the Wild West, you know, where you go up on a platform, you have a, a trap door and a noose around your neck. That's not the way it worked in Persia. The Persians invented crucifixion. It was then mastered by the Romans, of course, who crucified Christ. And it started with impaling. You get a long pole, and you pretty much, you run it through somebody, and then you lift it upward and drop it in a hole, and then the person is impaled either dead or alive, and it's a public statement. It's supposed to scare everyone and to be a warning sign. This led to the crucifixion where they included a crossbar, and that's how Jesus was crucified. So what do you think about Esther's request? The additional two days. I mean, it's sort of dark, right? She asked for another day of killing and also to impale the ten sons. How many of you so far in the book have been telling your little girls, hey, get dressed up, we'll have a princess party, you can grow up and be just like Esther. Now you're rethinking that whole thing. I don't know, man. Crucifying boys in the yard. 
is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this a holy thing or an unholy thing? And the commentators of the Bible, not a shock, a little divided on this. Let me give you two perspectives, and then you can come to D-groups this Thursday and fight about it. We'll do that. Please don't miss it. So perspective number one, what Esther did was a godly thing and a holy thing. Again, we've mentioned here that, you know, um, but commentators would say, you know, let's just take it all the way back to the Old Testament, and the Agagites were always the enemy of God's people, always. You see this in Deuteronomy, but this finds its culmination in 1 Samuel 15. There's a king named Saul, the first king of the Jews, right? We have heard of him. And God tells him two things. Kill the Agagites. Get all the Agagites. They exist to destroy your people. You both can't live. You kill them or they're going to kill you. And number two, do not plunder their goods. Don't make it about the money. That's what he's saying. Don't make it about the money. What does, call, what does King Saul do? <laughs> the exact opposite. He lets them live and he takes their money. He's sinned against the Lord. That's why Haman actually should have never been born. The Agagites should not exist. And those who say that what Esther did was a godly thing, a holy thing, they would say, well, all she was doing was obeying a decree given to Saul who disobeyed. All she was doing was obeying a very ancient command from the Lord. It was a good thing. Well, the other view is that Esther did a bad thing. It was an unholy thing. And the argument goes like this. Defend yourself on, the, on that one day when your enemies attack you. Well, that's justice. It's great. Everyone understands that. Everyone gets that. But then to add another day to go find your enemies now and actively kill them, that's actually not just self-defense. That's murder. She went too far. She took the decree from Mordecai, which was holy, and then she added an extra day of killing that was unholy. Furthermore, they would say, you know, taking the dead bodies of the ten sons, of your enemies and impaling them publicly, that's also going too far. They were dead anyways. Why do this? But now let me ask you, what do you think? It's hard to know exactly which one of these perspectives is biblical because, number one, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't. One of the difficulties in interpreting the book of Esther, and we've, we've talked about this, is this. There's no commentary in it. No commentary in it. It doesn't say, and the angels were rejoicing, or, or God was weeping. It doesn't say that. Additionally, some of us would say, well, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what the Reformers taught us. Amen. Good teaching. So what does the rest of the Bible say? Actually, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Esther's not even mentioned anywhere else in the Bible outside of Esther. So I reserve myself from making strong conclusions when the Bible doesn't. Okay? Is that a fair assessment? When it says, thus says the Lord, that's exactly what, what I want to say as well. Amen? And when the Lord doesn't say anything about it, I really want to be careful what I say. But let me just pull back and say that this is a tough Bible passage. But also, we believe that all scriptures, God-breathed and profitable. Amen? We believe if God wrote a book and he put something in it, it's important enough for him to say it. It's important enough for us to hear it. Amen? So Summit Church, we love the Bible, we believe the Bible, we study the Bible, we even, our, our second value is the Bible is our highest authority. So what do we do when we hit tough Bible passages like this one? What do we do? Well, let's look at four lessons that we can learn from tough Bible passages. I'm going to go very quickly, but I think this is very profitable for us this morning. Lesson number one, all scripture is equally inspired, but not equally clear. All Scripture is equally inspired, but not equally clear. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Just like God breathed life into Adam. God breathed life into His Word. God speaks through the authors of Scripture, but not equally clear. All Scripture is equally inspired, but not equally clear. Because some parts are, quote, hard to understand. That comes from 2 Peter 3.16. You may remember Peter. He was discipled by a guy named Jesus, so he had a pretty good Bible education. He wrote two books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. But here in this passage, in the context, he's talking about Paul's writings. If they were hard for Peter to understand, yes or no, are they hard for us? Could they be hard for us to understand? Yes, I think so. Have you ever heard of Paul? 
Women should not wear head coverings. Women should wear head coverings. And men should not have long hair. And you were predestined before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Hard to understand? Perhaps. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's not true. It means that some things are hard to understand. Sometimes that is because we're in a different culture. We're so removed from that culture, so it's hard to understand what was going on in that culture. Sometimes our hearts are hard, and we have a finite brain as well. There are all kinds of reasons we're not going to go into, but there are all kinds of reasons it can be hard to understand. So all Scripture is equally inspired but not equally clear. Lesson number two, most of the Bible is clear, especially on matters of first importance. Most of the Bible is clear, especially on matters of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What he's saying is, what Paul is saying is, Here's what's of first importance. Not everything in the Bible is of equal importance. Everything in the Bible is important, but not everything is of first importance. Does that make sense? How many Agagites died? It's important, but it's not as important as is Jesus dead or alive, right? That's of first importance. Did Jesus die for my sin and rise to, as my Savior? Yes, and it's of first importance. But when we talk about, do you speak in tongues? Uh, do you homeschool? <laughs> what is your view on worship styles? When do you think Jesus is coming back? How many Agagites died? Not as important, not unimportant, but not equally important. Does that make sense? The things about Jesus in what we call the gospel and a few other ones. God became a man, right? Lived without sin, went to the cross, substituted himself in our place, died in my place for my sins, rose the third day, conquering our enemies, Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. All of that is of first importance. Other things, secondary importance. So the Bible tends to be clear on matters that are first importance, and sometimes the things that are less clear are matters of second importance importance. Amen? Lesson number three. The Bible tells us all we need to know. It doesn't tell us all we want to know. The Bible tells us all we need to know. It doesn't tell us all we want to know. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed reading through the Bible? The Bible tells us everything we need to know. In fact, it, it says that God gives us everything we need for life and what? And godliness. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. But we have enough. We have more than enough to follow Jesus and to love him. Because we're not God. We're not all-knowing, right? And the truth is that we don't trust in what we know. We trust in the one who knows it all. That's Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible talks about faith. It's trusting the one who knows, knows it all. It's not having to know it all. Amen? And then lesson number four, we know in part. We just know in part on this side of eternity. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says it like this. We see in part, and we know in part. Now we see, and, and, and he says it like this, but it's like looking through a dim glass. That's how we see. We see partly. We're at the time of the year when you wake up and you, you know, it's cold outside and, and you got to go to your car, especially if it's parked outside, right? I think it was this week. We went to the 20s uh, at night, and, and there's some frost on the windshield, right? There is. And you look out the windshield, you, you know, you're, you try to go to work and you're, you're late, but you don't see clearly. You don't see perfectly. You don't see fully. You see partly. So what Apostle Paul is saying is that in a fallen world, as finite beings with a fallen brain, a sinful nature, and sometimes a reluctant heart, we see dimly. We see dimly. But we have enough. We have more than enough to love Jesus and to follow him. Amen? And then he says this, Apostle Paul. But when Jesus comes back, we'll see him how? Face to face. And we'll know as we're fully known. What he means is that in this life, we live by faith. Amen, church? And it's like, it's like seeing what's going on in the world. I just want to see Jesus, and I want to go to heaven. Anyone else? Those are the only two things on the, on the list. And when I get to him, He's going to open my eyes, take away my sin completely, transform the world, and then I'll see it all. Amen? So again, not really sure about Esther's decision 
Was it a godly thing or not? How many of you have had that in your life? You made a decision like, I don't know. I think I messed up on that one. It happens many times. I think my motives might have been mixed up on this one. Oh, here's the good news. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Amen? What a beautiful promise. You may not have gotten it right, but God will make it right because God is the God of grace, and he's a sovereign God to work everything for the good of those that love him. Amen? So when we're repentant, God works a reversal that leads to our rejoicing. Amen? But here's the truth. You don't need to have all your questions answered to walk with God. You don't. We don't. And that's not to say, let's just not open the Bible. No, let's talk about it. Let's dive in. Let's talk to one another. Let's go for coffee and open the Bible and pray about it, right? But you don't need to have all your questions answered to walk with God. And that's the point that we're trying to make here. You don't need to have all your Bible questions answered to walk with God. You have the important ones answered already you have more than enough i'll say it again and again we have more than enough to love jesus and follow him this side of eternity we may not have a clear answer on esther but we do have a hope that god does a perfect work through imperfect people amen and when it comes to the bible a lot of us christians that have been in church for a long time you know, we don't need to rewrite the story so that God, God's people are heroes. No, 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 no. And all, of, and all the other people are villains, and they never make a mistake. They're perfect, and they're good. Because that longing for a perfect, good leader and king is already fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and there's only one. The rest of the Bible are all villains, including us. Jesus is the only hero. Amen? Reversal number three. You don't have to live a greedy life. You don't have to live a greedy life. You have a wealth of riches in Christ. You have a wealth of riches in Christ. Let's continue with verses 16 to 19, and that's the end of the portion for today, the end of the scripture that we're going to read today. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Keep that in mind. They laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns Hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Careful reading of the Bible is so important. Do you notice that? Verse 16 says, they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, it says the same thing in the previous section that we just read today. They laid no hands on the plunder. And it says in chapter 3, if we go all the way to chapter 3, when the enemies of God attack God's people, that they can plunder them. Now, the decree given in chapter 8 by Mordecai, the reversal, was if they attack you, you have the legal right to plunder them. That's what it said. Chapter 9 tells us multiple times that God's people chose, that God's people did not plunder their enemies. Now, again, let's go all the way back to 1 Samuel 15 again. The decree was given all the, all the way back to King Saul. And God's command was clear. Do not plunder your enemies. God was clear. Again, what does King Saul do in, in, in God's people? They plunder their enemies. This, was, this had been a greedy people generation after generation. God's people taking what God forbid. They took something that was not to be theirs. They disobeyed. And so coming back to Esther now, when it comes time to conquer their enemies, they had the legal right to do so. And I want us to see this this morning. You will have ways of gaining wealth that are legal, but not ethical, not biblical. Does that make sense? You can't say, well, it's legal, so I can just pursue it. No. If it's not biblical, don't pursue it and don't touch it. Jesus says in Luke 12, 34, I think we've all heard this verse. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know what that means? That means that every single day we worship. 
We worship our wealth or we worship God with our wealth. Only two possibilities. It means that every dollar we spend, every transaction that we participate in, every expense that we incur, every investment that we make is an act, is an act of worship, and that's an indication of the heart. Let me tell you why we love our God, the God of wealth, so much here in the West. And why the word of God is like a hammer that comes to absolutely smash our false God. Because our false God is a liar who makes promises that cannot deliver, will never deliver. Our false God says that we are defined by the clothes that we wear, the house that we live in, the cars that we drive, the comfort we enjoy, the food we eat. And so wealth becomes the means by which we have power, comfort, and luxury. And by the way, none of which are necessarily a bad thing. They're not. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a sinful thing. We've talked about this before. And it's usually not the wealth, but it's the status. It's the possessions. It's the comfort. It's the convenience that the wealth provides. So then we worship it. We elevate it more than we elevate Christ in our life. We want it more than we want Christ in our life. And the lie is this. You don't need to die and go to heaven. You can have heaven now. That's the lie. If you make enough, you can create a world that is not affected by the curse, uh, and you can live in comfort and luxury. And you don't really need the God of the Bible, right? Because the God of money will give you heaven now. You're perfectly fine. And if you can't afford it, that's fine. Just put it on a credit card and forget that the borrower is the slave of the lender and enjoy the shackles of what was supposed to be freedom. Let me ask you this question. Is God against money? Is God against people having wealth and possessions? No. But God is definitely against money being spent in a way that the Lord forbids spending in ways that lead to destruction and brokenness. And God is definitely against putting money first before him. Because what the Lord commands, when God says no, he is actually, it's actually good for us. And it would behoove us to listen so we can prosper. And by the way, it's all the Lord's money anyways. We're just stewards of it. We're just managers of it. So we worship our wealth or we worship with our wealth. Back to the Esther drama. Here's what, here's what it meant legally that they can defend themselves. Check this out. If they defeat their enemies, they could get their entire estate legally. Just think about that. That's what taking the plunder meant. Now think about this. Let's say you've got five sons and you're in a poor family. And you could kill five Agagites. Do you, know, do you know what you get? Five households, five businesses maybe, five homes, five, like livestock, land, slaves, possessions, wealth, gold, all of it is yours. How many of us are broke and struggling? <laughs> and this thought of I could get a million dollar estate tomorrow and it's debt free and it's tax free and could be mine, who do I have to kill? And the law says I can kill them because it's self-defense. And God's law says that self-defense is a good thing. And on top of that, they're Agagites. Who cares about them? God ordered back in the day that they should be dead. Yeah, no-brainer. Wouldn't it be much better if God's people had these possessions rather than God's enemies anyways? And after all, if we don't take it, looters will come in and just waste it anyways. The people of God should definitely take this, and we might even tithe 2% at the church. Listen, church, let me remind us that Satan is going to bait your hook with anything you desire. The hook of temptation, it is going to bait, he's, he's going to bait it with sex, money, fame, power, glory, beauty, comfort, great point average, achievement, a seat at the company. He doesn't care as long as you bite and he can reel you in into death. It happened to Haman. It happened to God's people for a thousand years. But God says, don't bite it. Don't bite it. It's not worth it. Here's my question to you, to me. What business opportunity or what income stream do you need to just let go of? That's the application point for us. You say, well, why not? It's legal. But God says, no, <laughs> it's unbiblical. Let it go. And maybe for some of us, we've already taken what is not ours. We're like, I wasn't supposed to get it in the first place. 
And you can be so poor and still be greedy. And you can be so rich and still be so greedy. It's, a, it's the, the alignment of your heart. I was supposed to give it to the poor. I was supposed to tithe it, but I kept it. It's not mine, right? What I love here in our passage today is this. It gives us the year, the month, and the day when God's people repented from this. How cool is that? And so much of repentance, church, is demonstrated in finances too. It's demonstrated in, you know what? This God of wealth lied to me, and and now I'm going to empty my hands of wealth that I acquired unbiblically and just trust in the provision of the real God. And I'm going to be a good steward. I'm going to be a good manager of what the real God gives. And it tells us the exact date when they repented. How cool is that? I pray that this would be the day for us, for some of us here. And if the shoe fits, wear it, right? If this speaks to you, let it speak to you and convict you and then repent, right? And how cool is it? You can probably circle this day on the calendar too if God speaks to you today. It was this year, this month, this day that I repented maybe of a whole family legacy of greed and bad stewardship. And I want to change that. That's dishonorable to God. I don't want to change. I want to honor God with my finances, or I should say with his finances too. And sometimes God is not asking to get the money out of your own pocket. He owns everything. What he's actually doing is he's testing to reveal your idol in your heart and then to smash it. That's what he's going after. God is good and everything he asks for is for our good. Amen? Even if it hurts. And then what we see in these last few verses is that the people of God rejoice. Did you read that? Like, what? They throw a party. Now, how many of you would throw a party because you got rich? That makes sense. But how many of you would throw a party that you didn't get rich? They did. (laughs) Hey, I didn't win the lottery. Come over. We're going to celebrate. What? (laughs) Do Do you know why? It's because God is my treasure and God is enough. That's why. I'll say that again. It's because God is my treasure and God is enough. And that's the attitude that that honors God mostly. If he saved me and if he saved my family, that's the greatest gift of all. And I can't get any richer than I already am in Christ. Amen? So they throw a huge party to celebrate the fact that they didn't get rich. It's a great reversal. These people are not richer, but they're happier. They're not more secure in their earthly possessions. And so what? But they're more certain of their eternal security. That comes first. They don't have a lot of things to show off this great victory with, but they have a lot of joy knowing the love of God, don't they? And this is how God works. He works through reversals. And I'm going to end here with this thought. Jesus is the better reversal. Jesus is the better reversal. Mankind wanted to become like God. We all did, right? But in a reversal, God became a man. The Son of God lived in riches and glory. But in a reversal, came in poverty and humility, as we read in Philippians 2. We were destined to die for our sins. But in a reversal, our God died in our place for our sins. We are without righteousness, and we're with sin, all of us. But in a reversal, Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. I love that verse that says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we would become his righteousness or the righteousness of God. Our sin brought us death. That's what sin does. It brings destruction and death. But in a reversal, Jesus' death brought us life. Jesus died and was buried, but in a reversal, he rose to defeat death so that we could have a new life in him now. What a beautiful reversal. And lastly, Jesus returned to heaven, but in a reversal, he is coming again to reverse the curse. How beautiful is that? I don't know if you're visiting with us this morning. Maybe you've never heard the, the message of the gospel. Well, that section at the end, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That God loves you. He created us and then we just rebelled against him. But he pursued us. And now you get to hear the, this beautiful good news that God wants to bring you back in his family. God wants to bring you back through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross back into God's family. And you can have a new life. You can have a new eternity. 
a new dreams, new purpose through what Jesus did on the cross. But the response is, and there's got to be a response, and the response is, yes, Lord, I accept that gift. Yes, Lord, I, I want to get baptized. And baptism, what baptism is, is, is a public declaration of, what, of, of the salvation that Jesus brings in our heart. That's what it is. So if that's you, man, I want to pray for you. Come and talk to me if you want to get baptized. We'd love to do that. Um, but would you stand with me? Let, let me pray over our hearts. I thank you, Father. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our fellowship here this morning. One of the greatest sounds on this side of eternity is the sound of your saints singing to you. I want to thank you for that grace that I have to hear the sound of the saints singing to you. I thank you for this opportunity, Father, to just worship you this morning. Help us to not take this lightly. Help us to seize the moment, Father, and to fully surrender our hearts and our lives before you. We thank you also for the great reversal. We thank you that we deserve death, but you gave us life. Our sins, Lord God, drove us on, on, this, on this road to, to hell and destruction, but Lord, you took our sin. You who knew no sin, you took our sin and you died in our place so that we could have life, eternal life, life in you, a new life here on earth as well. And I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you so much for this great news. I ask that you would pierce our hearts again this morning. Convict us. Help us repent where we need to repent. Help us change what we need to change so that we would live for your glory more. And I thank you for this amazing reversal that you went up to heaven, but you're going you're gonna to come back. You're going to come back to take us home to reverse that curse. I thank you for your love. I thank you for all that you've done, for all that you're doing now. I thank you for, that, for all that you're going to be doing from now on. You're a faithful God, and we love you because you first loved us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.